Section 63 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 63. Chapter 18, Part 2. Monasticism by Dom E.C. Butler. In Syria, there were, at the beginning of the 4th century, daughters of the covenant, analogous to the sons of the covenant, spoken of above. Whether they led a full community life is uncertain, but in one of Rabula's regulations, at the beginning of the 5th century, it is prescribed that sons or daughters of the covenant, who fall from their estate, be sent to the monasteries for penance which implies the existence of convents of women. In all probability, there were in Syria, as elsewhere, fully organized nunneries, though there is not much Syrian evidence concerning them. Certainly in Palestine at this time, there were many convents of women, including those established under the influence of the Roman ladies Paula and Eustochium and the Melanias. When St. Basil began his monastic life about 360, his mother and sister were already living in a community of nuns in the immediate vicinity, with a river between them, and throughout Greek-speaking Christendom, in Asia Minor, and above all in Constantinople, women practiced the monastic life hardly less than men. No Eastern nuns, however, have at any time devoted themselves to external works of charity, like the modern active congregations of women in the West. There is a considerable body of evidence showing that the ascetical life was pursued in the West, notably at Carthage and Rome, as in the East, before the introduction of monasticism proper. But there is no sufficient reason for questioning the tradition that attributes the knowledge of the monastic life in Western Europe to the influence of St. Athanasius. In the year 339, he came to Rome, accompanied by two Egyptian monks, and thus spread in the city and its neighborhood the knowledge of the manner of life that was then being practiced in Egypt. Many candidates presented themselves, and we learn from Ambrose, Jeremy, and Augustine that in the last quarter of the fourth century there were numerous monasteries of men and of women in Rome. Among the high-born patrician ladies, the movement had a great vogue and became so fashionable that an agitation against it arose, of which St. Jerome had to bear the brunt. These ladies, brought up in every luxury, gave up all things and surrendered themselves to lives of hardship and devotional exercise. The most famous of them, as Paula and Melania, even left Rome and went to the Holy Land, where they established sisterhoods. Monasteries rapidly spread over central and southern Italy, and the islands of the Tyrrhenian Sea were peopled by hermits. In North Italy, too, monasteries existed by the end of the 4th century at the chief cities, at Aquileia, where Rufinus and Jerome were trained in the monastic life, at Milan, where Ambrose had a great monastery of men, at Ravenna and Pavia and many other towns. 
Eusebius, Bishop of Vercelli, died 371, introduced a change in the idea of the monastic life that merits for him a more prominent place among monastic legislators than is commonly accorded to him. He combined the clerical and monastic states, making the clerics of his cathedral live together in community according to the monastic rule. This was the starting point of the practice destined to prevail both in West and East, whereby monks as by ordinary rule became priests, though it was several centuries before the custom was established. It was in the form initiated by Eusebius at Vercelli that the monastic life was introduced into Africa by St. Augustine on his return from Italy in 388. In 391 he was ordained presbyter at Hippo and established a community of clerics living together according to rule. And when in 396 he became bishop of Hippo, he continued to follow the same manner of life along with his clerics. Several bishops went forth from this community to other sees, and in most cases they established similar monasteries of clerics in their episcopal cities. This union of the clerical and monastic lives was widely prevalent in Africa, and it became the exemplar both of the institution of secular canons in the Carolingian reform, and of that of canons regular, or Augustinian canons, in the Hildebrandine. Monasteries of the type normal in those days also arose in Africa. In the times of Tertullian and Cyprian, veiled virgins were recognized, but it is doubtful whether they had developed into a proper monastic system before St. Augustine's time. During his episcopate, there certainly were many nunneries, one being presided over by his sister, and his letter 211, the only authentic rule of St. Augustine, was written for the guidance of a nunnery. Thus, in the early years of the 5th century, monarchism was strong and flourishing in the African church. The beginnings of Spanish monarchism are obscure, and the records scanty. The first reference is a canon of the Council of Zaragoza in 380, forbidding clerics to become monks. This shows that the monastic institute must by that date have spread considerably in Spain, but there seems to be no extant evidence of the existence of a monastery in Spain till the beginning of the 6th century. There is a tradition that then one Donatus carried monasticism from Africa into Spain, but the names to be associated with early Spanish monachism are Martin, Bishop of Braga, a Pannonian, and the Apostle of the Arian Suebs, who died in 580, and Fructuosus, also Bishop of Braga, about a century later. The latter was the great organizer and propagator of monachism in the peninsula, establishing several monasteries and writing, probably, two rules for their guidance. It is chiefly from these rules that we get glimpses of the earlier Spanish monachism. It seems to have been a common practice for a man to call his house a monastery and to live in it with his wife, children, and servants. Against this abuse and others, St. Fructuosus legislates. One feature of his rule is unique. 
It contains a pact between the abbot and monks, whereby the latter bind themselves to the performance of the duties of the monastic life under the abbot, and empower him to inflict specified punishments for certain offences, and on the other hand reserve to themselves, in case the abbot should act in an arbitrary or tyrannical way, the right of appeal to other abbots or to the bishop. St. Fructuosus lived a century after St. Benedict's death, but throughout the Gothic period there is no trace of Benedictine monachism in Spain. In the extant rules of Spanish origin, those of Leander of Isidore and of Fructuosus, it is possible to discern certain reminiscences which betray a knowledge of the Benedictine rule, but Mabillon greatly exaggerates their significance. These rules are in no sense declarations or commentaries on St. Benedict's, and Spanish monarchism was not at all Benedictine before the time of the Christian reconquest. Early Spanish monarchism was indigenous, and it retained its individuality till the fall of the Gothic kingdom. Our only glimpses of it have to be obtained through these later rules, and so it has been necessary to carry our view forward beyond the strict limits of this survey. It may be doubted whether monasteries were numerous in the Gothic period. The councils of Toledo throughout the 7th century used to be attended by 50 or 60 bishops, but there were never more than 10 abbots present, and often only 6 or 5 or 4. We have little information concerning the origins of monarchism in the Celtic lands, though the system played a prominent part in the Christianizing of most of them. It seems that the earliest Celtic monasteries were missionary stations, closely connected with the tribal system. St. Patrick, who had passed some years as a monk in Larines, see below, built up the Irish church in large measure on a monastic framework, and this initial tendency became more and more accentuated, till the bishops came to be subordinated to the abbots of the great monasteries. Our first definite knowledge of an organized cenobitical life in Ireland comes to us from the 6th century, during the course of which several great monasteries were established in various parts of the island, some of them counting more than a thousand monks. But any full knowledge of early Irish monarchism has to be gathered, not on Irish soil, but from the documents connected with St. Columba, who towards the end of the 6th century established a great monastery in the island of Iona or Hai, the missionary influence whereof spread over southern Scotland and northern England, and from the documents connected with St. Columbanus, who early in the 7th century founded a number of Irish monasteries in Central Europe. St. Columbanus' rule is the only Irish monastic rule, properly so called, that has come down to us from the early period of Irish monarchism. It was not composed in Ireland, but undoubtedly, it embodies the Irish traditions of monasticism and ascetical discipline. Irish cenobitical life, as seen in these documents, was one of extreme rigor and austerity. At all times, the eremitical life had a great vogue in Celtic monarchism, and in spite of all difficulties of climate, 
the Irish hermits successfully rivaled in their extraordinary penances and austerities and vigils the hermits of Egypt and even those of Syria. In Ireland, where the population continued purely Celtic, the Irish rules and Irish monasticism maintained themselves throughout the Middle Ages. But in England and on the continent, where they came into contact with populations Teutonic or Teutonized, they succumbed before the Roman rule of St. Benedict. Gaul is the country of Western Europe in which early monarchism was most widely propagated and flourished most, and for which the records of pre-Benedictine monarchism are the most abundant. It is said that St. Athanasius introduced the knowledge of the monastic life at Trier during his exile there, 336-37 and the well-known story of St. Augustine's conversion shows that before the end of the century there were monks living an eremitical life there. But it is with the name of St. Martin of Tours that the beginnings of Gallic monachism are rightly associated. A Pannonian by race, born early in the 4th century, he had practiced the monastic life for some years before becoming Bishop of Tours in 372. Nearly ten years earlier, he had established a monastery near Poitiers, and, on becoming Bishop of Tours, he formed one just outside of his episcopal city, at the place afterwards called Marmontier. Here he gathered together eighty monks, and lived with them a life of great solitude and austerity. They dwelt singly in caves and huts, meeting only for the church services and for meals. They fasted rigorously and prayed long. It was indeed a reproduction of the life of the Egyptian monks. Our information concerning this earliest Gallic monachism is mainly derived from the writings of St. Martin's biographer, Sulpitius Severus, and from his correspondence with St. Paulinus of Nola. From these sources we learn that by the end of the 4th century, monasteries and monks and nuns were already numerous not only in the province of Tours, but in Rouen, and the territory that afterwards became Normandy and Picardy. The beginning of the 5th century witnessed the inauguration of monarchism in Provence, at Marseilles, under the influence of John Cassian, and in the island of Larines under that of Honoratus. From Lorraine's went forth a number of monk bishops, who, throughout the 5th and 6th centuries, by the monasteries they set up in their episcopal cities, and by the monastic rules they composed for their government, spread far and wide through southeastern Gaul the influence and ideas of Lorraine's. In other parts of Gaul, too, monasteries arose in the 5th century, the most famous being Condat in the Jura Mountains. After the Frankish conquest of Gaul and under the early Merovingian kings, the monastic movement continued throughout the 6th century to spread all over Frankland. A twofold tendency set in, one towards relaxation of life of observance, the other towards the eremitical life and the extremist forms of asceticism such as are met with among the Syrian hermits. Gregory of Tours gives numerous examples of hermits 
especially in Auvergne, who in their fantastic austerities equaled those in Syria, and his evidence is corroborated by other documents. It was not till the seventh century that Benedictine monachism got a foothold in Gaul, and about the same time St. Columbanus imported his rule and manner of life from Ireland. For a time, the three forms of monachism, the Old Gallic, the Columbanian, and the Benedictine, existed side by side in Gaul. In order to understand why the Benedictine gradually and inevitably supplanted the earlier monachisms in France, in Italy, and in England, and was destined to become the only monachism of Teutonic Europe, it is necessary to survey the character of the earlier types. The early African and Spanish monachisms were swept away by Vandals and Moors. The Irish remained insular and isolated from the great currents of monastic development, so that Italy, France, and England are the countries in which the transformation of the earlier types of Western monachism into the Benedictine was worked out. It has to be remembered that in those days, neither in the West nor in the East, Outside the Pacomian system, was there anything resembling the present Western idea of different orders of monks? There was only the monastic order. Monasteries were autonomous, each having its own practices and its own rule, or selection of rules, depending mainly on the abbot's choice. Before St. Benedict's time, there were current in the West translations of certain Eastern rules, that of Pacomius translated by Jerome, that of Basil translated by Rufinus, and the rule attributed to Macarius. There was a rule made up out of the writings of Cassian. There was St. Augustine's letter, number 211, on the government of a nunnery. It is doubtful whether Honoratus of Lerins wrote a rule. The only extant Western rules properly so called which are certainly earlier than St. Benedict's, are that of Caesarius of Arles for monks, and his somewhat longer rule for nuns. But these are quite short, and not one of these rules that came into contact with St. Benedict's in his own time, or for a century afterwards, not even the rule of Columbanus, could claim to be an ordered and practical code of laws regulating the life and working of a monastery. This St. Benedict's rule preeminently was, and the fact that it supplied so great a want doubtless was one of the chief reasons why it supplanted all its rivals. But there was another and still more powerful reason. St. Benedict was the man who adapted monasticism to Western ideas and Western needs. Monasticism in Italy and Gaul was an Eastern importation, and up to St. Benedict it bore the marks of its origin. The life of the hermits in the Egyptian deserts, with their prolonged fasts and vigils and their other bodily austerities, was looked upon as the highest ideal, the true ideal of the monastic life, and the monks of Italy and Gaul endeavored to emulate a manner of life, hard enough in Oriental climes, but doubly hard in Western Europe. This straining after severe bodily austerities can clearly be discerned in the fragmentary records that have survived of pre-Benedictine monarchism in Italy and France, 
where the practice of a purely eremitical life was very common. St. Benedict, while recognizing the eremitical life, says definitely that he legislates for Cenobites only. Moreover, he did away with the oriental spirit of rivalry in asceticism, whereby the monks used to be with one another in their mortifications. St. Benedict laid down the principle that all should live by the rule and conform themselves in all things to the life of the community. And even during Lent, when the undertaking of some extra mortification was recommended, it was all to be under the abbot's control. Moreover, the common community life which St. Benedict established in his monasteries was not one of great severity. A hard life it was, of course, and one of self-denial, but if judged by the ideals and ideas current in his day, his rule must have appeared to his contemporaries to be, in the matter of diet, of sleep, of work, and of hours of prayer, nothing else than what he describes it, a little rule for beginners. Italian and French monks were at that time trying to live up to ideals that were impossible for most in the western lands, and the general failure was producing a widespread disorganization and decay. St. Benedict came and eliminated these incongruous eastern elements, and made a reconstruction of the monastic life admirably suited to western, and especially to Teutonic, conditions. To this must be attributed in greatest measure the success achieved by his rule. St. Benedict was born in Nursia, near Spoleto, probably about the year 480. He was of a noble Umbrian family, and he was sent to Rome to follow the courses in the schools. The licentiousness there prevalent made him determine to withdraw not only from Rome, but also from the world, and to become a monk. Full of this idea, he fled away from Rome to the Sabine Hills, and buried himself in a cave overlooking Nero's artificial lake on the Anio at Subiaco, forty miles from Rome. It is probable that he was not a mere boy, but a youth old enough to have become enamored with a lady in Rome. Consequently, the date was within a few years of five hundred. There can be no doubt that the Sacro Specco at Subiaco is the cave inhabited by Saint Benedict during the first years of his monastic life. Its solitude was complete, and the wild, severe grandeur of the surrounding scenery was well calculated to inspire his young heart with deep religious feeling. In this cave he lived for three years, only a single monk of a monastery in the neighborhood knowing of his existence, and supplying him with the necessaries of life. It is not a little remarkable that he, who was destined to turn Western monasticism definitely away from the eremitical ideal, should himself, as a matter of course, have gone to live as a hermit on determining to become a monk. It was only after very thorough personal experience of the hermit's life that St. Benedict decided it was not to be for his disciples. In another matter also did he turn his back on his own early ideas. After passing three years of solitude in his cave, his existence gradually became known, and disciples flocked to him in such numbers 
that he was able to establish not only a monastery ruled over by himself, but also twelve others in the neighborhood, over which he exercised the sort of control which the superior general of a group of congregation of monasteries would now be said to exercise. But when he was compelled to leave Subiaco and migrated to Monte Cassino, he confined himself exclusively to the government of his own community there, without continuing to exercise control over the other monasteries he had founded. And so, his rule is concerned with the government of a single monastery only, without any provision for the grouping of monasteries into congregations or orders, as became the vogue later on in the West. This continued the Benedictine practice for many centuries. During the greatest period of black monk history, the great Benedictine houses stood in isolation, each self-governed and self-contained. It was not till the 13th century that, under the inspiration of Cluny and Citeaux, the policy was adopted of federating the Benedictine abbeys of the different ecclesiastical provinces, and to this day the essential autonomy of each house is the foundation stone and central idea of black monk polity. It is impossible to fix the date at which St. Benedict founded his monastery at Monte Cassino, probably around 520. He lived there till his death, and Monte Cassino is the place above all others associated with his name. The rest of his life was quite uneventful. In 443, he was visited by Totila, and he died about the middle of the century. As Benedictine life soon became, and for well nigh seven centuries continued to be, the norm of monastic life in the Latin Church, it will to be the point to give a rough picture of the daily life that obtained in St. Benedict monasteries, as it may be reconstructed from the rule. St. Benedict's monks rose early in the morning, usually about two, but the hour varied with the season of the year. They had had, however, an ample period of unbroken sleep, usually not less than eight hours. The midnight office between two periods of sleep, so common a feature of later monasticism in the West, had no place in Benedictine life as conceived by St. Benedict. The monks repaired to the church for the night office, which consisted of fourteen psalms and certain readings from scripture. It was chanted throughout and must have taken from an hour to an hour and a half. It was followed by a break, which varied from a few minutes in the summer to a couple of hours at midwinter, and which was devoted to private reading of scripture or prayer. The matin office, now called Lord's, was celebrated at dawn and prime at sunrise. Each took about half an hour. Prime was followed by work, field work for most of the monks, or reading, according to the time of the year, and these exercises filled up the time till dinner, which was at twelve or at three, the short offices of tears, sext, and noun being celebrated in the church at the appropriate hours. In summer, when the night's sleep was short, the usual Italian siesta was allowed after dinner. The afternoon was passed in work and reading, like the forenoon. Vespers or evensong was sung sometime before sunset, and in the summer was followed by an evening meal. 
Before dark, while there yet was enough light to read by, they assembled once again in the church, and after a few pages had been read, Compline was said, and they retired to the rest in the dusk, before there was need of an artificial light. On Sundays there was no work, and the time assigned to the church services and to reading was considerably lengthened. According to St. Benedict's scheme of the monastic life, work occupied notably more time daily than either the church services or reading, and this work was manual, either in the fields or garden or about the house. This element of work was intended to be an integral part of the life, not a mere occupation, but a very real factor of the monk's service of God, and from six to seven hours were devoted to it daily. These long hours of manual labor, coupled with the unbroken fast till midday or 3 p.m., or even till sunset during Lent, and the perpetual abstinence from flesh-meat, may convey the impression that, after all, the life in St. Benedict's monastery was one of great bodily austerity. But it has to be remembered that, though members of patrician families were to be found in his community, Still, the great majority was recruited from the ranks of the Italian peasantry, or from those of the Goth and other barbarians, who were then overrunning Italy. Neither the fasting nor the abstinence from meat would appear to Italian peasants in the present day, and still less in the sixth century, so onerous as they do to us in northern climes. The other exercise of the monks, outside the direct worship of God, was reading, to which from three to five hours were assigned daily, according to the season. There can be little doubt that this reading was wholly devotional, confined to the Bible and the writings of the fathers, St. Basil and Cassian, being recommended by name. Out of this germ grew in the course of ages those works of erudition and of historical science with which the Benedictine name in later ages became associated. The first step forward along the path of monastic studies was taken not by St. Benedict, but by his younger contemporary Cassiodorus in his Calabrian monastery at Squillis. But the chief work of the monk was, in St. Benedict's eyes, neither field work nor literary work. All the services of Benedictines to civilization and education and letters have been but by-products. Their primary and essential work is what St. Benedict calls the work of God, Opus Dei, the daily chanting of the canonical office in the choir. To this work he says nothing is to be preferred, and this principle has been the keynote of Benedictine life throughout the ages. The daily course of psalmody ordinarily consisted of forty psalms with certain canticles, hymns, responses, prayers, and lections from Scripture and the Fathers. It was divided into the eight canonical hours, the vigils or night office being considerably the longest. It is probable that this daily common prayer took some four to four and a half hours, being chanted throughout, and not merely recited in a monotone. Mass was celebrated only on Sundays and holidays. Private prayer was taken for granted and was provided for, but not legislated for, being left to personal devotion. 
The abbot governed the monastery with full patriarchal authority. He was elected by the monks and held office for life. All the officials of the monastery were appointed by him and were removable at his will. He should take counsel with his monks in matters of moment with the whole community, in lesser matters with a few seniors. He was bound to listen to what each had to say, but at the end it rested with him to decide what was to be done, and all had to obey. The great, in a sense it might be said, the only restraining influence upon the abbot to which St. Benedict appeals was that of religion. The abiding sense, impressed on him again and again by St. Benedict, that he was directly and personally responsible and would have to answer before the judgment seat of God for all his actions, for all his judgments, nay, even for the soul of each one of his monks as well as for his own. But his government must be according to the rule, and not at his own mere will and pleasure, as had been the case in the earlier forms of monachism. And he is warned not to overburden his monks, or overdrive them, but to be considerate always and give no one cause for just complaint. The chapters specially written for the abbot, 2, 3, 27, 64, are the most characteristic in the rule, and form a body of wise counsel, not easily to be surpassed, for anyone in office or authority of any kind. This formation of a regular order of life according to rule this provision for the disciplined working of a large establishment was St. Benedict's great contribution to Western monarchism and also to Western civilization. For as Benedictine abbeys came gradually to be established more and more thickly in the midst of the wild Teutonic populations that were settling throughout Western Europe, they became object lessons in disciplined and well-ordered life, in organized work, in all the arts of peace, that could not but impress powerfully the minds of the surrounding barbarians, and bring home to them ideals of peace and order and work, no less than of religion. Another point of far-reaching consequence was that St. Benedict laid upon the monk the obligation of abiding till death, not only in the monastic life, but in his own monastery in which he was professed. This special Benedictine vow of stability cut off what was the very common practice of monks, when they grew dissatisfied in one monastery going to another. St. Benedict bound the monks of a monastery together into a permanent family, united by bonds that lasted for life. This idea that the monks of each Benedictine monastery form a permanent community, distinct from that of every other Benedictine monastery, is a characteristic feature of Benedictine monachism, and the chief distinction between it and the mendicant and other later orders. Without doubt, it has also been the great source of the special influence and strength of the Benedictines in history. Another distinction lies in the fact that St. Benedict, in common with the early monastic legislators, set before his monks no special object or purpose, no particular work to be done, other than the common work of monks, the living in community according to the evangelical counsels, and thereby sanctifying their souls and serving God. 
A school of the service of the Lord is St. Benedict's definition of a monastery, and the one thing he requires from the novice is that, in very deed, he seek God. Nothing probably was further from his thoughts than that his monks were to become apostles, bishops, popes, civilizers, educators, scholars, men of learning. His idea simply was to make them good, and if a man is good, he will do good. The ascetical side of the training in the rule lies chiefly in obedience and humility. The very definition of a monk is one who renounces his own wishes and comes to fight for Christ, taking up the arms of obedience. It is the temper of renunciation and obedience, rather than the actual obeying, that is of value. The chapter on humility, seventh, the longest in the rule, has become a classic in Christian ascetical literature. It embodies St. Benedict's teaching on the spiritual life. The general spirit of the rule is beautifully summed up in the short chapter, on the good zeal which monks ought to have, 72. As there is an evil and bitter emulation which separates from God and leads to hell, so there is a good spirit of emulation which frees from vices and leads to God and life everlasting. Let monks therefore practice this emulation with most fervent love, that is to say, let them in honor prefer one another. Let them bear most patiently with each other's infirmities, whether of body or of character. Let them contend with one another in their obedience. Let no one follow what he thinks most profitable to himself, but rather what is best for another. Let them show brotherly charity with a chaste love. Let them fear God and love their abbot with sincere and humble affection, and set nothing whatever before Christ, who can bring us unto eternal life. In view of the great influence exercised on the course of European history and civilization in things both ecclesiastical and civil, from the 6th century to the 13th, by St. Benedict and his sons, it seemed proper to supply the foregoing somewhat detailed account of the Benedictine rule and life, with an outline sketch of the steps whereby St. Benedict's supremacy in Western monarchism was achieved. This chapter will be concluded. Though the rule was written as a code of regulations for the government of one monastery, it is evident that St. Benedict contemplated the likelihood of its being observed in different monasteries, and even in different countries. Besides Monte Cassino, his own monastery at Subiaco, and perhaps the twelve others, continued after he had left them, and there is mention of one founded by him from Monte Cassino at Terracina. These are the only Benedictine monasteries of which there is any record as existing in St. Benedict's lifetime. For the stories of the missions of St. Placidus to Sicily and St. Morris to Gaul must be regarded as apocryphal. It is said of Simplicius, the third abbot of Monte Cassino, that he propagated into all the hidden work of the master, and this has been understood as indicating that the spread of the rule to other monasteries began in his abbacy. But the historical determining point was the sacking of Monte Cassino by the Lombards about 580-590, when the monks fled to Rome and were placed in a monastery attached to the Lateran Basilica in the heart of Latin Christendom under the eyes of the popes. 
It is now generally agreed by critical students of the period that the monarchism which St. Gregory the Great established in his palace on the Coelian Hill, wherein he himself became a monk, was in an adequate and true sense Benedictine, being based on that rule which St. Gregory eulogizes as conspicuous for its discretion. From the Coelian Hill it was carried to England by Augustine, the prior of the monastery and his companions, 596, and it is probable that the monastery of Saints Peter and Paul, later St. Augustine's Canterbury, was the first Benedictine monastery out of Italy. As has been said above, it was not till the 7th century that Benedictine monarchism got a foothold in Gaul, but during that century it spread steadily and at last rapidly throughout Gaul and England, and from England it was carried into Friesland and the other Germanic lands by the great English Benedictine missionaries, Willibrod, Boniface, and the rest. Being well adapted to the spirit and character of the Teutonic peoples, then overrunning Western Europe, the Benedictine rule inevitably and quickly absorbed and supplanted all those previously in vogue, so completely that the Charles the Great could ask the question if there had ever been any other monastic rule than St. Benedict's. The Benedictines shared fully in the effects of the Carolingian revival, and from that date, for three centuries, St. Benedict's spirit ruled supreme throughout Western monarchism, Ireland alone excepted. All through the Benedictine centuries, Benedictine nuns flourished no less than Benedictine monks, and nowhere more than in England. St. Boniface's correspondence with several Anglo-Saxon nuns, both in England and in Germany, reveals the high standards of education and of life that prevailed in the English nunneries. Communities of Benedictine nuns have in all ages been predominantly ladies, recruited from the upper classes, and the life is specially adapted for them. Naturally, it has been a more secluded life than that of the monks, but the great Benedictine nunneries have always exercised considerable religious and social influence. In the foregoing pages, the ideals of the various phases of early monasticism have been set forth. It is not pretended that these ideals have always been realized by monks, but it is right to estimate a system in large measure by its ideals, except where failure adequately to realize them has predominated. That this has been the case with Christian monarchism as a whole will hardly now be contended by any historian. End of section 63